Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Hey, everyone. September is National Voter Registration Month in the United States, and we're celebrating with a special voters registration series. This month, we're going to be talking about the growing threats to American democracy, as well as some opportunities to increase participation. Starting with today's episode, Debbie and I will be interviewing elected and nonprofit leaders who have dedicated their careers to expanding access to the ballot box and ensuring elections across the country remain safe, accessible, and secure. We'll be talking about movements to expand voters' rights, measures to protect local election workers, and how states, especially battlegrounds, can protect the future of American democracy. These interviews are going to culminate with our 200th episode on September 21st. If you need help checking your registration status or looking up your state's voter registration deadline, please visit canivote.org, the National Association of Secretaries of State's nonpartisan online election dashboard to learn how you can vote in upcoming elections. To kick off our voter registration month, I'm talking to Hannah Freed. She's the executive director of All Voting is Local, an organization that exists, and I love this mission statement, to expose and dismantle threats to voter freedom to build democracy for all of us. Before co-founding and leading this organization, Hanna served as the National Director and Deputy General Counsel for the Voter Protection on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2012. She also served on the, as Voter Protection Director for President Obama's re-elections efforts in Florida. She's a Harvard Law School grad and spent several years working at the Department of Justice and the Environmental Protection Agency. Hanna Freed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here and to be part of the celebration of National Voter Registration Month. Yes. And uh, by the way, you're our lead episode for our new YouTube series. So uh, this is this is an exciting technological step for the Honorable (laughs) Profession podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I got my my background, my voter registration background to to, to celebrate you and all your work. But why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, All Voting is Local? Yeah. So we are a multi-state organization that, as you said, focuses on ensuring that voters can register and that they can vote and that their votes are going to count. And we do that by working with and putting pressure on the state and local officials who are charged with running our election systems. And making sure that when they're making these decisions about, you know, where can people vote and how can they register and which polling places are going to stay open or close, right? That they do all that with the needs of the communities that they're supposed to serve in mind, particularly historically disenfranchised communities, black and brown voters, Native American voters, students, folks with disabilities, right? People have been cut off from access to the ballot for way, way, way too long. So that's a little bit about what we do. We love working in our eight states. We've been around for 
just over five years in some shape or form. And we're excited to be rounding the corner into another presidential election year. What I love about your organization is it is focused on local. People think we have a national election system. In fact, we have 51 uh, different election systems with all local implementation that is varied at best. How do you how do you choose where to focus your efforts and which issues to focus on? Yeah, such a good question. And you know, I would say that there are actually probably more like thousands of <laughs> different election systems in this country because as you say, right? Local election officials decide how they're going to run their elections. And yeah, you know, they do that within a framework that is set, you know, basically by the state, right? Just a little bit of a degree. There's federal protections, but you know, it's really about what the state says. But then these local folks, they make a ton of decisions, right? I mentioned they're making decisions about where to put polling locations, how they're going to make registration available. How are they going to make voter ID available, right? I mean, this is stuff that kind of rolls down to folks at the local level. So the way that we think about, you know, where to work and what issues to focus on, I'll tell you a little bit about the states where we work. We work in Arizona and Nevada, Florida and Georgia, Ohio and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. And we started working in these states for a bunch of different reasons. Some of them had at one point been covered, at least in part, by special protections of the Voting Rights Act, which got gutted in 2013 in the Shelby County case. And we thought, okay, there's a gap here, right? There's no longer these special federal protections, this extra federal scrutiny for voting changes. How can advocates like us, nonprofits, nonpartisan groups like ours kind of step in to fill that gap? We also thought about geography, right? Arizona and Nevada are two states that have a number of the same kind of challenges for voters. They have a relatively small number of counties, especially when you compare it to the 159 in Georgia, right? But and folks are really spread out. We got a couple of urban centers. We got a ton of rural voters in those states. Native American communities and tribes make up pretty significant portions of the state, right? So there's some common kind of geographic and demographic similarities among our states. And really, we were drawn to where voter suppression problems could be solved by state and local election officials if there was some kind of will, political will to do that. And I don't mean that in the partisan sense. I mean, what is it that makes people tick? What is it that moves the needle and makes a public official want to do right by the community they're supposed to be serving. And so that's how we, that's a lot of why we got the organization up and running. And that is the work that we do now across our states. And tell us a little bit about what you see as the state of American democracy. I think all of us are inundated with redistricting decisions coming out of Alabama and a vote in Ohio and efforts in Florida. And like, yeah. it, it feels, it feels overwhelming. Do you have a sense as to sort of where the trend lines are going and where people should be putting their attention and concern? Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot. And I I will say I've changed my thinking in the last few years, in the last year, really. I used to think that we were, as a country, kind of in the business of perfecting our imperfect democracy. I have more recently come to be of the mind, and I, I really want to attribute this to other leaders in the voting rights and pro-democracy space who have really pushed 
me and also us as a country to see this differently. I think the idea of us being a nascent democracy is actually probably more accurate. The fact that there were many people who did not actually have a guaranteed right to vote at all until quite recently, we're talking about a few decades, right? You know, that really makes us new as a democracy. And so I think the the way that that has shifted my thinking, you know, one, I mean, look, it's like, it's rough out there. Don't get me wrong. Like (laughs) there is bad stuff happening for our democracy and for the right to vote. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But I do, there is a way in which that actually makes me feel more hopeful, not less. Newer democracies struggle. I mean, even if we if we figure we're a few hundred years old as a democracy, we're still relatively new. And so I think that that actually gives me a sense of optimism. And I will say, too, that, you know, we recently saw Ohioans say unequivocally, hey, we are not going to be pushed around. And it is voters who decide the future of this state. It's not politicians. And I'm talking about the the ballot issue that Ohioans had a chance to vote on in August. And that was an incredibly powerful moment. We work in Ohio and, you know, to hear from our state-based staff and just to see Ohioans turn out in an election that has historically been very low. It's the reason the state retired the August election and legislator then saw, legislature then saw fit to bring it back just so they could vote on this one thing. But, I mean, people turned out. And they said, no, enough is enough. And this is a state that has experienced, we don't tend to think of Ohio this way as a country, but they have faced a ton of voter suppression, you know, at least two decades worth of really serious rollbacks of access to voting by mail, access to early vote, ridiculous voter purges that tried to remove the president of the League of Women Voters of Ohio from the voter rolls. Pretty sure she was an active voter. And she was, <laughs> right? I mean, gerrymandering, right? I mean, one of the strictest voter ID laws in the country just got passed. And I think Ohioans just said enough is enough. And, you know, that's not just about Ohio. That's about people across the country. And voters are turning out. Um, which gives me a ton of optimism. And they're doing it amidst not only, you know, really significant efforts to try and stop them from doing that, but also things like the pandemic and just hard times. So, you know, that's a long answer. I would say my like TLDR top line about it is, you know, I don't feel too bad. I really don't feel too bad. Yeah. Is there, I mean, I I dare to say, is there a reason, you know, a couple of years ago, all of us were reading How Democracies Die and a bunch of books and watching norms and laws change. And, and obviously, as you mentioned, Shelby versus Holder opened the doorway for a lot of voter suppression. But maybe is there reasons in with Ohio, with some of these surprising decisions out of the Supreme Court, with some the indictments in Georgia, that like there is an effort to, to reestablish norms and the basic right to vote? Yeah, knock on wood, all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, I, I definitely think so. I think, look, like a lot, Ohio is a good example of this, but it's hardly the only state where we've seen this, this sort of incremental degradation of small D democratic norms, right? Of these incremental kind of chipping away at the right to vote, right? It doesn't always seem overt, right? It's like death by a thousand cuts, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. But that doesn't mean that people aren't seeing it and feeling it and experiencing it. They are. I think it just sometimes takes something major that gets put to people, whether it's COVID, right? And then the things, I mean, just 
horrible, horrible experience for the country and for people all over this country. But we did get changes to voting that people actually benefited from and liked and appreciated, and they didn't want to lose them, right? Or the question presented to Ohio voters about whether to change the threshold for passing amendments to the constitution, right? And voters were just like, it's, we are the ones who get to decide this, right? When you really put it to people, they're going to tell you what they want. And what they want is a democracy that functions. That's what I like to hear. I mean, let's, let's, <laughs> let's keep I mean, it look, going. Like, I, I want to, I don't want to like paint too rosy a picture either, right? <laughs> I mean, for your, for your uh, viewers, I was going to say listeners, but look, like, I mean, it's tough out there, right? I mean, we are in this work every day and we're fighting for stuff that, you know, we lose. We do not win. I mean, hardly every fight. I mean, not even close. Right. This is a it is a tough battle out there for voter access. And it has been it has always been that way since this country stood up. But, you know, look, I'm going to I'm going to take my victories when I can and I'm going to enjoy them. Absolutely. And we have New Deal leaders out there like Adrian Fontes and Jocelyn Benson who are with you on the front lines of some of these fights. Are you seeing for the state and local leaders who may be listening in or are, are concerned about democracy, are you seeing models that they should be implementing and adopting that are best practice and will expand, start to, to add to that tide and maybe even not just stop threats, but actually increase opportunities? I think one thing that has really been positive about the last few years is that election officials and, you know, state and local officials who have authority over elections in some way or other are really leaning into the power that they have. I mean, you mentioned Jocelyn Benson and all that she has done on behalf of Michigan voters, right? Whether it is, you know, standing up to efforts to undermine the lawful counting of votes or the certification of elections, right? Whether asking for additional funding for the implementation of new rules in Michigan, which she did last year. I mean, Michigan is a great state actually to think about right now. Voters passed Proposition 2 last year, which created significant protections in the state's constitution for the right to vote from the process of voting all the way through to certification. And now it's the job of local election officials to put that into practice and state officials too, like the secretary of state, Jocelyn Benson. And so that work that you know she has done that other officials are doing right now in the state of Michigan to say, wow, okay, we have this, the voters here in this state, they've, people in this state have tasked us with a really serious responsibility, which is to protect their right to vote. And how are we going to do that? And they're taking that commitment seriously. That's the kind of thing we want to see from election officials. Arizona's got election officials who are doing the same thing too. I mean, you know, I'll say also the attorney general saying, you know, really clearly, hey, listen, counties, you know, you you cannot hand count ballots. Here's what you can do, right? Here's how we make sure votes get counted in the in this state. Here's what the law says and what it requires of us, right? I mean, that is these are the kinds of protections for the right to vote and the kind of acts we want to see from state and local officials to ensure that the right to vote is being protected. Fantastic. We will look for, go to your uh, All Voting is Local to also see resources and ways to help. I want to hear a little bit about your journey into how you have dedicated your life to this. Before we do, I want to take a moment, though, to remind all of our listeners that we're marking the release of our 200th episode in five years of this podcast on September 21st. We gathered a few clips from our favorite episodes to commemorate it. 
And here's one from Washington's former Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib. He was a rising star in the party, like an incredibly energetic guy. He had been blind since childhood as a Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School grad, first Iranian-American elected to hold statewide office. And he actually uh, gave it all up to join the Jesuit priesthood. And here's a clip from that episode. And, um, you know, for me, my motivation was really driven by this same pro-growth, progressive approach. And on the progressive side, I'll say, you know, I already mentioned that I know firsthand how important state services are to give people a, a, just a fair shot. All of us face challenges. And, and this, this coronavirus moment shows us that we can all be vulnerable at various points. And this is a crisis that's affecting all of us, but there's crises that affect individuals all the time. And they're just as devastating and sometimes more devastating even than what we're all facing right now. And that's what happened when I became blind, of course, was that kind of a crisis. So I know that firsthand. And so I, I wanted to run for office to, coming from that perspective, be able to provide for everyone who may feel left out or excluded give you know from our educational system our economy or even our political system and give them that chance all right now we're back let's talk about you we heard a little bit from cyrus abib but let's talk about how you found your way to voter protection as um as a as a mission in life yeah so i my very very first uh voter protection experience was on the nonpartisan election protection hotline, which I will pause and plug for just a moment, 866-OUR-VOTE. You can call that if you're having trouble voting. And there are trained volunteers, lawyers who are going to help you out. And I was a paralegal. I wasn't even in law school yet. And I volunteered on the hotline in 2004. And it was awesome. I mean, it was great. Like if you, you know, I think especially if you're a lawyer, to feel like, okay, I'm really helping these people. Or for me, like I was an aspiring lawyer. I knew I was going to go to law school the following year. And I just, you know, I was like really bright eyed and thought I'm going to really help people. And so I got to, I got to do exactly that. I helped voters and it was awesome. And then I, I shortly after that, a few years later during the 2008 primaries, I was a law student finishing law school is my third year. And I wound up volunteering for then Senator Obama's campaign and doing voter protection work, which meant that I went to polling locations and I watched the process of voting and helped voters where I could, where where it was appropriate for me to do that, made sure that people felt encouraged to vote. And I think that seeing election officials poll workers, right? Who, you know, generally speaking, are volunteers. They're coming in just for a day or a few days to do that, right? To see the dedication that they had, to see what it meant to voters to cast their ballots, it changed the course of my life. It changed the course of my life. And I think from there, I wound up doing a bunch of more stuff for the Obama campaign. And then I worked at the Democratic National Committee as the deputy council and deputy director for voter protection there. And then I was in Florida in 2012 doing voter protection work there. Then in 2016, I did voter protection. I was the national voter protection director for the Clinton campaign. And all that time, you know, what I loved about doing voter protection work, aside from the fact that, you know, working in politics was fun. It was dynamic. It was exciting. You eat terrible food. And the lifestyle is appalling. 
but it's really fun, right? I was the right yeah. age for that. Although I will say by the time I was doing 2016, I was married and I had a kid and a house and a dog and we moved to New York and lived in this really tiny apartment. And I mean, it is not for the faint of heart. I will tell you that it was really something, um, but I loved it. And I really, really, really loved doing that work. But I think what I learned about it that I, I took away was that there was a better way to help voters than I felt that I was able to do working in the political space. I felt for me that the problems that voters were facing were actually solvable, but you had to try and solve them in a year-round way. Because election officials are making their decisions. I mean, they're making decisions right now. In in Arizona, in August of this year, the state was having you know hearings and, and accepting testimony on the state's election procedures manual, which is like, I don't know, a couple hundred pages document that tells election officials in the state how to run the election. This is what the law says about how we run our elections here in Arizona. And that's for 2024, right? They do that in 2023. And if you really want to help voters, if you really want to make sure that voters can register and cast their ballots and that their votes are going to count and the results are going to be expected, you got to be there all the time. You cannot just come in September of an election year and be like, oh, well, shit, why is all of this stuff not working? Well, because, you know, you needed to be advocating on this a year before. So that is, I think, the kind of joy that I find in being able to do this work in the kind of year-round and nonpartisan way that we do it as an organization. It's it's such a joy. And I will say everyone on our staff has some story like mine where they, you know, and sometimes it's it's even more personal, right? And they came to this work as a calling. I mean, I think it is really for a lot of us, it is a calling that is much bigger than than ourselves. How do you when these regulations are being created in Arizona. Yeah. And it's crazy that democracy feels like it's becoming a partisan issue and people get set on one side or the other. And you're trying to do it as a nonpartisan organization and step in with good information. How do you how do you navigate those those waters in order to make sure that the right policies are implemented? Good question. I think I think a lot about how 16, 17 years ago, 2006, right? Senate, the House, unanimously in the Senate, overwhelmingly in the House, passed the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. George W. Bush signs it into law. I mean, what, the greatest piece of civil rights legislation the country's ever known? Overwhelming bipartisan support for it. We've been there. We've been in a place like that. And I think that, and you know, Ohio, again, I know I've talked a lot about Ohio, but I really have it top of mind because it's so recent. I think, you know, if you look at that, right, you can really see there are basic things that people want, right, that we all want. People want to be able to vote when it works for them, when they have, you know, they got their kids, they got older family they're taking care of. They cannot get to the polls between six and six on election day. They want to vote by mail. They want to go vote, vote early. I mean, these are policies that are popular among people, just people, flat, right? 
And I think bringing us back collectively to that, appealing to that. Yeah. I mean, there are people who use the systems of our elections, right? Politicians who use the system of our elections to override or try and override the will of the people and hold on to power for themselves. But that is not new. I mean, that's our whole democracy was built on that premise, right? That some people get in and some people get out. And we don't even let them in the door, right? I mean, the whole like American experiment started like that. And so it's not a new threat. I think though, that bring us back to these basic values, right? Of who decides the people decide, right? That's what we saw in Ohio. And that was an incredibly diverse coalition in all senses of people who voted no on that effort to take power from Ohio voters. And so I think the moment we're in, no doubt, is so polarized. So I think about this a lot because I have to, because this is like our whole job is figuring this out. Like you say, how do we navigate this? I mean, that is the question that is squarely in front of us. But I, I do think a lot about the common ground that we can find. And I think one thing that's really helpful for me kind of personally, I work in Washington, D.C. I am geographically pretty far, in some cases very far, from the states where we work. But we have staff in each of these eight states. And they will be the first to tell you, I went, I sat down with this election official. They started off saying that, you know, elections can't be trusted. And then they became an election official. And now they really believe in the system that we have because they've seen it and they know it works. And stories like that are so powerful because they remind you that people are actually just people and they can, there are these basic and fundamental things that we actually all agree on. I am hopeful as we look ahead to 2024 that these extreme anti-voter ideologies that have become increasingly mainstream will get relegated to the margins again. If 24 looks like 22, where elections are certified, results are respected. Yes, don't. there's been that noise. Yes, yes. But at the end of the day, our election systems worked. Voters voted, their votes counted, and the election results were certified and they were certified on time. And I think if we have another election like that, I think we will be on a path towards, if not all the way there to, relegating these really extreme ideologies right back to where they belong, which is at the fringes. I want to talk about, I think you're you're right that on ideology, actually, most Americans sort of believe in an access to, to democracy of fair play. That gets distorted through misinformation, right? And then accelerated through the, the channels that through algorithms to promote the misinformation. How are you seeing misinformation impact elections and what can be done to combat that? You know, for the work that we do, certainly the disinformation that is directed at voters, you know, whether it's about sort of misleading voters about where and when to vote, days and times of voting, and the disinformation about whether we can trust our elections, which impacts voters, but also becomes the basis for passing, you know, bad policies, right? Those are the things that we are concerned about. And I'll say, like, these are not that new, right? I mean, when I started doing this work in college towns, for example, you would see leafleting on cars that said, you know, you're going to lose your financial aid if you vote here, right? I mean, that's like a classic one that we saw time and time again. The problem now is is volume, right? I mean, and certainly AI, and I will be the first to say, I don't, we have not as a sort of movement of you know, pro-voter advocates, we're still figuring this stuff out, just like everybody is still figuring this stuff out. I mean, these technologies are new. 
The thing I would say is a couple things. I think one is on the individual level, there's a lot that we can do. I think checking out sources of information, not promoting bad content, promoting good content through your own social networks. I mean, you mentioned at the top a website, right, where people can get good information. There are tons of organizations, ours, many others, the Election Protection Coalition, the NAACP, the League of Women Voters. These are trusted and reputable sources of information about where and when to vote and how votes are counted and how to make sure your vote is going to count, all that kind of good stuff. Also, election officials, uh, especially local ones, are the people that voters go to for information, right? It's calling your local person, right? Someone you may even know. And so I think for those offices to be able to keep up with the spread of disinformation, I mean, look, they need more funding. They need more funding so that they can get that good information out and really get it amplified in a way that has any chance of competing with the disinformation that's out there. So yeah, those are a couple of things, I think. But I'll tell you, we got a long way to go on figuring out how to solve for this stuff. I mean, certainly it would be great if the platforms, social media platforms, did their part, but they have not leaned into that as much as we would like. So heading into 2024, you're worried about democracy and in these key states or in your own community, like what's the big issue that people should be looking out for that maybe isn't getting enough attention right now? This is a really good question. The issue. What is the issue? I'll say this. I think one thing that has shifted in this work in the last two years, so pretty fresh, is that, you know, we used to see voter suppression efforts targeted to urban areas, student communities, right? Places where voters of color live, where young people live, right? There were very specific targets of voter suppression. And so you knew that, you know, this, the kind of like disinformation leafleting that I mentioned, you know, you knew where you were going to see that. But the, the landscape has actually changed in the last couple of years. And so I think this is not so much on the individual level, like what, what should I as an individual voter think about, but sort of in the aggregate, what can we all collectively be looking out for? There's a lot more of this kind of anti-voter activity in more rural areas. If you think about 2022, if you think about, okay, election day comes and it closes and you know votes are in, right? And we got mail ballots still coming. Where were the problems? They were in places like Cochise County, Arizona, which is a small and rural county. And that is where there had been leading up to election day, an effort to hold up the certification of the election by doing this very slow process of hand counting ballots. And that's a shift. I think for folks who work in the kind of pro-democracy space to have everybody focused on Cochise County, I think not what you would have expected, right? Going into the election, Maricopa County. Sure. Absolutely. Maricopa County. Totally. Tons of people living there. Very diverse community, right? But all eyes were on Cochise. So that I think is an interesting trend for like election watchers, right? Like people are interested in this stuff. Like what's a new thing to keep an eye out for? That. And that's not the only one. Nye County, Nevada, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, right? You know, maybe you weren't even aware these counties existed until 2022. I mean, folks in the state, of course, did. But if you're like a national election watcher, your eyes were on Philly, right? right? Your eyes were on Clark County. Right. These are the big population centers where this where voter suppression has historically gone down. But these rural counties are where a lot of the action is. And that's an interesting shift in the last couple of years. That is interesting. I hadn't 
thought or heard about that at all. And then the idea is that in these places, you slow down the counts enough to throw off certification timelines and all that. Yeah, statewide, right? And, you know, I think if you're a person who's trying to kind of gum up the works and so distrust, you got to figure, okay, where am I going to be successful in doing it? And it's frankly going to be a lot easier for you in a place like that, right? It's just smaller. It's right. It's just, you know, we're not talking about a big urban center with a lot of people. You're talking about a small election board. Maybe you know those folks. You're going to go chat with them. Yeah. And they're they're under-resourced and... So right. anything, any challenges you make, they may they may want to comply and may not have the the means to. Yeah. So that is an interesting an interesting shift, and it just means we got to be as we think about protecting the vote, we have to think in a more expansive way than we have before. Because absolutely, as you say, right? If somebody stops the certification of the election in one even small community, that can have statewide implications. And certainly in a presidential election, that could have national implications. So we got to be, we got to be looking out for that and ready to protect the vote absolutely everywhere, which, you know, (laughs) we're not that big of an organization. (laughs) But, you know, here's the thing. I joke, but here's the thing. Like there are communities all across the country. And again, I mean, I think this is one of the things that gives me a lot of hope and inspiration, right? When this was going down in Cochise County in Arizona in 2022, people turned out. They went to county board of elections meetings and they said, we want our votes to count, right? And so, you know, that's where it's at. Like, I mean, I'm joking about our size. Like what actually matters is that real people in these communities hear about what's going on and that they have more importantly, because they, you know, they do hear what's going on, that they have that opportunity for public comment and that they there's a place for them to go and and say, hey, it, this is not going to work for us here. I love it. Thank you. I mean, thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being there in these small counties that the rest of us may not even know uh, have the potential to derail our national elections and love the conversation today and love the work you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I uh, I love the chance to to reflect, especially to celebrate uh, Voter Registration Month. <laughs> Thank you. An honorable profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.